Hello, and welcome to The Taproot. I'm Ivan Baxter. And I'm Liz Haswell. This week, we're going to be talking about how to stay focused when you get pulled into controversy. Our guest this week is Kevin Folta, chair of the Horticulture Department at the University of Florida, who engages in extensive public outreach. We hear how he got caught up in a storm of controversy when, through a Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA, request, his emails were made public. We talk about how he's moving forward as a survivor of fake news. It's a fascinating and an emotional look into the impact that the GMO wars are having on the lives of plant biologists. And now to the conversation. Well, Kevin Folta, welcome to the Taproot. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. So our, our guest today is Kevin Folta. He is currently a full professor and chair of the Horticultural Sciences Department at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Before that, he got his PhD from the University of Illinois at Chicago. And Kevin has uh, uh, just a really impressive CV with many different services to the community. He's been an editor at multiple journals, including uh, ASPB's own Plant Cell, and has done a really wide range of outreach activities, which we will definitely be talking more about as we go. The paper that we are going to be talking about today uh, was published in 2017, and the title is Identification of Novel Growth Regulators in Plant Populations Expressing Random Peptides, and that is in plant physiology. So, Kevin, can you give us uh, just a, a short intro into what this paper is? Sure, and, and it's actually really my favorite paper. Um, we've done a lot of interesting things over the years, but this one takes the cake. Um, I've always wondered what would happen if we could put random information into a plant or any organism and uh, at the level of DNA and then see if the plant or organism would translate that and create some sort of a novel peptide that then may or may not interact with biological processes. And so we did this in plants um, by adding six or 12 amino acids uh, to a start and stop codon that would cyclize, which meant that we would basically create new chemistries that would integrate with plant biology occasionally. We would introduce these two, introduce these two individual plants in a population and look for things that weren't quite right. <laughs> and then we could extract that uh, sequence, reintroduce the sequence, and then uh, show that it indeed was producing some sort of product that interfered with biology. And the big idea was, could we identify new vulnerabilities in new places where maybe herbicide design or potential plant growth regulators? That's it in a nutshell. So so this is a really cool paper, and it's just a neat way of introducing variation that you can screen for interesting phenotypes. And you discovered a, a bunch of them. In any phenotypes that you were really interested in up front, or was it really just trying to see what all could happen? Yeah, I was just interested to see if it would work. I mean, it was just purely testing the hypothesis that this could be a potential way to, as you say, to, to identify new variation. I really thought of it as just kind of throwing monkey wrenches into a very complicated machine and, and uh, you know, muck up the works and present some sort of a conspicuous phenotype. So it was just testing that it would happen, and it really worked well, much better than we could have predicted. How did you get the idea to use this approach? It goes back to um, ideas in something called um, phage display, where they would introduce random uh, information into uh, phage and then look for DNA, or sorry, protein-protein binding interactions to identify new uh, potential 
uh, receptors or, in, or ligands uh, using a viral expression system. And this goes back to almost the 1970s. And people kind of forgot about it in the 1990s. And so that was kind of planted the seed. But then when we had gateway cloning, it made it possible to make these large libraries of random information. And that's when this really took off. Yeah, it's interesting. I When I read the paper, I sort of approached it like, oh, you're trying to find substitutes for endogenous peptides that have activity. But as I was reading it, I realized you're really just looking for activity. And it doesn't really have to be that, you're, that the cyclic peptide that you end up that ends up producing a phenotype is taking the place of an endogenous cyclic peptide, but only that it has an effect that could then be applied later. No, exactly. I mean, it's just kind of a rogue piece of chemistry that um, may or may not find some sort of interaction. And it may be protein-protein. It may be binding into, you know, RNA. It could be binding a substrate. could be sticking in a membrane. Who knows? The, that's something that we'll figure out later. Basically, this was just a way to identify new vulnerabilities or new, I say vulnerabilities because so much of what we have identified are peptides that kill plants. And that is, <laughs> which is a wonderful phenotype to work with because you don't have any seeds to play with to test it later. You have to make fresh new plants that you can kill, which is a big pain. But in terms of identifying things that could be new herbicide targets, this is spot on technology. And that's where we really focused our majority of our attention. So one of the things that I, I'm really curious is if you've thought about doing this in another species, or is it this one of those things that if you can't turn around generations and bulk transform like you can in a rabbitopsis, this is it's just not feasible? Well, yeah, it would be feasible, but um, impractical. So rabbitopsis with its rapid transformation and efficient transformation uh, and large populations make it really doable. Where we've really started to see the most impact is when we're doing this in microbes, because we can now target um, things like Staph aureus or uh, Yersinia and all kinds of nasty pathogens where there's antimicrobial or antibiotic resistance. Those are the targets we're going after now. So, is there a sort of a future directions for the plant, the plant work? Will you be like, I don't know, do you have people who are following up on specific peptides to try to figure out how you could make them synthetically and add them that way or that kind of thing? Yeah, that's actually what we've been doing. We've had quite a few of these that we've had synthesized both in, uh, in their DNL forms. Then what we've been doing is uh, spending a lot of time working on identifying more of these lethal peptides or peptides that uh, have some sort of a developmentally gated phenotype. What we see is the plants are happy as can be. They grow first pair of true leaves and then drop dead. So there was something that happened in that developmental window that said, you know, there's a problem where that peptide was now relevant to a biological process, an essential process. We've also started to take uh, agrobacterium and do agroinfiltrations of the, of the sequences with the peptide, encoding the peptide, and uh, introduce them into things like palmer amaranth, uh, tobacco petunia, you know, like a whole garden of different plants, just to see if we can invoke either a localized response to the peptide that would kill that spot or potentially evoke some sort of systemic response in the plant because of this presence of this peptide. And um, we're seeing some interesting results. That is just a, it's a really cool story. And, and, and it does sound like it was a whole lot of fun to do these experiments. But, but anybody who's followed you on social media over the last three years knows that even though this cool stuff was happening, this was perhaps not the most fun time in your career. Um, 
maybe you could tell us a little bit about what's going what was happening while this was all going on well sure i mean in short i'm i'm a fake news survivor um you know i hate to use that term but I was part of an orchestrated and very um, well-financed campaign to discredit me as a scientist and really to silence my voice in, in the ongoing discussion of genetic engineering in plants. And the big idea is, is that and this is a, a passion of mine to share science and talk about science, communicate science to broad audiences, especially folks who are concerned about technology. And... Um, I do this, a few other people really are into that, uh, that particular topic, uh, quite a few people. The, the idea of the activist groups was if they could stop someone from speaking about it, they could scare everybody off from speaking about it. So, you know, you take down somebody and then everybody else runs for cover. It's uh, called the spiral of silence. It's a well-understood sociological phenomenon of what happens when, uh, when someone is attacked for their viewpoints. So this, I guess... It started with a Freedom of Information Act request for your emails, I guess. Is that when this really kicked off? Yeah, it was really strange because I've been talking to um, public audiences for, dec from like I don't know, maybe two decades now um, about genetic engineering and really enjoying going to places like where people are really concerned about their food and helping them understand what this is and what it is and what are the risks and benefits. You know, real level-headed, nothing... Um, inflammatory, just real easy. Here's the science. Kevin, give us an example of what kind of a platform you're talking about here. Well, um, all kinds of them. There, um, I used to speak to um, church groups. I would speak to, like, one, my, one of the best ones was back in the year 2001 in Madison, Wisconsin, where I was a postdoc. They have a grocery store called uh, Willie Street Co-op. And uh, really wonderful people, really cool place, got a great vibe in the neighborhood. But they have really missed... Um, guided ideas about food and farming in terms of, you know, what are the real risks? And at least this was back in 2001. And so I asked them if we could organize a little meeting and you know, have like a get together. And we did. And it was wonderful because we got to explain to a very um, skeptical audience what this was, what the technology was. But I've spoken to everybody from third grade classrooms to this week retirees to scout troops, to, I mean, you name it, um, I've been in front of them. And the idea of just sharing science and answering questions. And so mostly people are, are asking you questions about GMOs, I would guess. Oh, yeah, that's, it. that's exactly it. Most people have some concerns. They've heard things. They've really read a lot on the Internet, which has been the worst infection with respect to uh, dissemination of good information. Yeah, talk about fake news. Oh, totally. And then we have a scientific community that is, doesn't want to engage this because of the hostility that you engender when you do speak about it. And, uh, and then the dangers of having uh, people take shots at your career um, and costing your university millions of dollars in, uh, in defense and in, uh, FOIA, uh, in delivering FOIA compliance. So it's, it's, there's no incentive to step into the public audience to do this. Um, and if anything, it's dangerous, but it has to be done. And so I'm excited to take that, take on that mantle. I mean, you were at, at this point tenured and maybe even already the department chair when this happened, or did this happen? No, I was, I was tenured. I was the chair of the department when the FOIAs came down. And when the FOIAs came down, I didn't think anything of it. I thought, give them what they want. Give them all my emails. I don't care. The um, problem is, is that if you give someone who's hostile, you know, 5,000 pages of email, 
which right now it's probably up around 70,000 pages of email. Uh, they still come all the time. They will find something they can manufacture to really hurt your reputation. And once that goes out on the Internet, then the toothpaste is out of the tube, and it's, it's there forever, and you, it's really hard to correct. So um, if you Google my name um, and you look at the first 10 pages, if you didn't know me, you would never hire me for anything. I mean, it looks like I'm, I'm a criminal. I mean, it looks like I've broken rules. That I've, it's, it's really awful what this does to you. And um, it, it could have very strong effects on career trajectories, especially someone like me. I'm kind of young for the job I do. And I could do a lot of cool stuff in university administration. Maybe I'd like to do that someday. Um, this really is a stone around my neck with respect to that potential progress. So you, you sort of set the stage where it's really this terrible negative feedback loop between scientists trying to talk to people about what they know is going on and then that really impacting scientists negatively so scientists don't say anything so then misinformation propagates but tell us exactly what was happening to you uh, assume that we didn't uh, weren't following the new york times or these articles in forbes and and just tell us the specifics well, it, it goes back to the fact that I've always enjoyed speaking to public audiences, and so it, I've started to get a lot of traction and visibility for speaking for industry trade groups like, you know, ASTA or Pork Board or Beef or whatever, because a lot of the same principles in science communication that we deal with in scientific controversies in plants also apply to animals. And when you go to these larger ones, they usually like to, to give you an honorarium or some sort of payment for your time. And I don't take that personally. I would put it into a foundation account at the university where those donations would build and then allow me to do training workshops that I could then pay for. So I could rent the space and put out coffee and sandwiches. And I would do these at different universities. And I did, I, I did um, Iowa State. I did um, Arizona State. I did quite a few of these. And then found that I would get asked to do them for farmers and other groups. And I had a budget that I could use for that. Well, um, in 2014, we had a uh, Florida genetics meeting, and I, we had someone from industry there, and he said, wow, you know, this is really a great thing that, that your students do. They're really well prepared. They look really good with their communication skills. I told him about my workshops, and he says, you know, we could put some funding into that. That's a really good thing. Uh, would you, you know, mind sending us a little proposal about what it might look like? Everything went great. The check went to the university donations. No big deal. Turns out that it was the Monsanto company. Okay, so that's Fine with me. Great to see them doing good things for science communication. The problem is when that shows up in your emails, those communications, now it allows people who want to silence you to connect you now to be, you know, deeply ingrained in the pockets of Monsanto, you know, and now you're, now you're toast because now the Internet takes over and just runs with the smear. And so that's exactly what happened. And the activists handed all of my emails over to uh, the New York Times, where they found a reporter who was willing to tell their story. He talked to me, too, and I told him exactly what the truth was, but he told the, he told the story the activists wanted told, not the story that was. And uh, we're still dealing with that today. And you, were, you started to get like personal threats and things like that shortly after that. Yeah, it was pretty awful. I mean, when, when you, not just, uh, I mean, I even got one this week where someone said, how fatal would it be to get a gunshot to the head from so many feet away, Dr. Fulta? You know, um, you, you get that stuff all the time. 
but back then it was it was really persistent and people using everything in like any local pages in my town to put false information about me uh, about my family uh, it was showing up everywhere but when the new york times says this guy's uh you know engaged in these dodgy activities now all of the uh next tier activist websites you know the natural news the uh all of them they all explode saying as verified by the new york times you know the gray old lady the solid source of information this guy's a scumbag and that propagated everywhere and it even ended up in um, like, uh, I think it was uh, Chronicle of Higher Education went for it. Oh, my it. God. And so I just endured massive impact that even today I'll get into a collaborative email environment with a whole bunch of names, a whole bunch of professors, and someone will say, why is he here? He shouldn't be discussing this. He's paid by the industry to lie about science, and they'll post, my, they'll post the New York Times link. So this is a stone around my neck for, for life. Again, and, and it's horribly unfair, and, you know, it, it, it has the capacity, you know, I've wanted to quit so many times. God, that's just so nuts. I mean, I, I, when I first got here, the first grant I got was a grant from Monsanto. It's terrifying. I'm, like, just as much in the path as you, except that I'm not speaking out um, in the way that you are about GMOs. Well, the sad part about it was that the, they did the right thing by funding that uh, program, and I had received so much blowback, so much hassle that my boss suggested, um, why don't you just give it back? And if you give it back, he said he'd fill in that deficit. And I said, don't worry about it. We'll find other ways to raise the money if we need to. But um, we, they, the company couldn't take it back. There's no mechanism to give money back to a company. So the university donated the, that amount to a campus charity, food charity, a food bank, and so I never even spent a penny of that money, yet it's something, just the fact that, um, that they would say they were undisclosed grants. It, it wasn't an undisclosed grant. It was a fully disclosed donation to a university um, foundation account that we were drawing against to, to cover the costs of a communications workshop program. <laughs> I mean, um, That's nice. it, it was the most innocent of things that was made to look like a total crime. Right. So your reputation is being destroyed here. How are like what what's going through your mind and how are you managing this? Are you just like, I can't think about this or I'm going to fight it? Like, what's your attitude at this point? You know, it's 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 even hard for me to talk about now because it was so bad. And there was a day that I was on a plane and they had I was flying to give a talk in uh, Montreal and um, they said, uh, that there was a problem with the plane. We weren't going to take off. Um, we would be a little bit of a delay. And I sat there thinking that if this plane crashes, I will be just okay with this. Oh, my God. I worked so hard my entire career, and I put students first. Um, I, uh, you know, I did, I, I've always worked at the service of others. I've always tried to do the right thing. And um, to have that 30-year career just gone, just gone overnight, it was, it was devastating to me. It damaged me so badly personally. I had all kinds of physical health problems. I had, you know, heart, heart stuff that was going on that made no sense. And um, the only way eventually that we uh, that came to my mind after a month or so was the only way to get on the other side of this was to do more of it and to be a more visible communicator and to do a better job and do more outreach and then tell everybody that you're doing it. 
and it, all you could do is do more of it. And and that's what you did. I mean, you you're back on track, right? I think so. Um, I, you know, the podcast is going really well that I do. I've been you know doing the podcast now for three years, talking biotech podcast. Um, I had to shut that down for a while because you know it, you I had to just disappear from visibility. I had to be gone, and it that was so hard for me to be not doing the podcast, which I love doing. It's my Saturday morning, you know. And so all these things, they, I, had, um, I had conferences that I was to speak at cancel. You know, they called and said, hey, thanks, but no thanks, Monsanto man. You know, are you it serious? Was, yeah. I mean, and these are like academic conferences. And so, I mean, this was just like a total black eye. I'm one of the few faculty members who um, will show up in a classroom whenever I'm asked, and I'm on the hot button like the bat phone over at Alatra County Public Schools and <laughs> the science coordinator you know she, she if they have a, subst- a teacher who can't show up or something happened where they need someone to talk about science with the kids she'll say hey Volta can you get over there yeah cancel my day I'm over talking to kids today and I did this maybe once a month and something would come up and then after this article it went to zero and I don't know that it is directly but can you imagine some parents saying, I don't want that guy in my classroom and documenting my kids? I mean, I'm still not on the other side of it. I, I don't know how how I would even approach that, but you still manage to do science while you're doing that. Is that... <laughs> yeah, so running a department and running a, and running a laboratory. And, and the thing is, is that I think what it is, is that, uh, you know, the... The chair job gives me tremendous satisfaction. Um, I'm in service to, uh, arguably, I'm sorry, this is really tough. I'm in service to arguably the greatest group on, on the planet. And, um, I mean, you can see I'm still a mess from this. Um, and, uh, and, I still had, and I still have a wonderful lab group and still have that. Those are my safe spaces, and those are the places where I really do, you know, where I'm safe where things are happy and where I can immerse myself in the things that matter and the people that matter. And uh, all I could do is keep plugging away through it. I had a lot of conversations with communications experts, and they said the only thing you can do with this is if they said that you are not transparent, you give them hyper-transparency. You, you show everything. You know, if someone buys you a cup of coffee at a conference, you note it. And so that's where I had to go. And if they say you're just working for industry, you show lots of articles that have nothing to do with industry. Do your work, do it more visibly, and show people that you're doing it. And that's what I did. How did your people deal with it? And how did you, did, did, it, did it change your relationship with the, with the postdocs and the grad students who were working in your lab? Or No, nothing changed in terms of the people that know me. I mean, everybody who knows the story and knows me knows that this was really a well-orchestrated, very uh, purposeful attack. Uh, to discredit me from being at that forefront. It wasn't just me. I was, it was done to me because if you could take out one person, then you could potentially take out everybody. And uh, everybody who knows me, you know, they know the real story, you know, and, and it was never, never an issue. But do you think that that affected people in your lab who were trying to go on to jobs? Or do you think it's enough of a small community, people who would be interested in some of your students or postdocs for jobs would sort of have the inside? Um, I think it actually had the opposite effect. I think what happens is, is that people know that my po- the postdocs and, and grad students who come out of my lab are tailored 
to be able to speak at the public interface and know how to read an audience and know how to communicate their science. And so I think it, it, that's worked well for us. The, the whole thing with public speaking, what's so funny is, is that the, you know, I do so many talks every year. I don't know, probably 50 to a hundred talks a year. And, um, and people who know me from that don't know I have a research lab and people who know my research you know, in the light, strawberries and other areas, they don't really know that I do this public outreach stuff. So they're very separate ideas in the minds of different uh, groups. So, I mean, this whole story is so like a symbol of what's really going on in our society today, the way that people are just getting broken down by the 24-hour news cycle and sort of misinformation. And it's just such a, it's such a terrible story. But I think what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say is the way forward is not retreat, right? The way forward is to advance. And what would your advice be to somebody who's thinking, I really, I really need to be part of a science communication. How do I do it? Or maybe I shouldn't. Like, what, what would you say? I, I think you have to. I think we have to run into the burning building on this. And we ha- that if everybody was involved, and everybody was, and I'm not just saying scientists, if our farmers, if our agricultural um, producers across the board, farmers and ranchers, if people were in this conversation more, they have the trust. We have the trust as academics. And if we are all taking part of this conversation, then it's really hard to discredit all of us or FOIA all of us or whatever. We have to lean into this. The other thing that we need to do is defend those who are under attack. I had so many people at ASPB the next year come up to me and give me a big hug and say, I'm sorry for what happened. I wish I would have said something, but I didn't want to get dragged into this. And you do have to speak up, and we do have to protect each other. And one of the ways that I've gotten through this is by finding cases where people have been subject to injustice because of media or because of activism and go to fight for them. And um, the best one that I... I have engaged a few of them, but for, on, on behalf of Britt Hermes, who's a former naturopath who's now being sued because she says naturopathy is garbage. Christine Latin, who is a postdoc at Yale who studies bird behavior, who has PETA show up in front of her home and, uh, and boycott her home and put pictures of her around her school. I mean, this is what, uh, you know, I go in for on their behalf and I tell their stories and I get people excited about fighting for them. The folks who stepped in it for me were so valuable in me being able to get through this that now I want to be there for others. All right. Well, this has been great, Kevin. I I really thank you for uh, your willingness to come on and tell your story. Where can people reach you uh, politely? Yeah, a, <laughs> yeah. Well, first thing you do is mail a FOIA request to my university and ask for all my emails. And you'll get a lot of stuff. No, um, I, the best place to find me is at Kevin Fult on Twitter. Um, also, uh, the Talking Biotech Podcast at TalkingBiotechPodcast.com. Those are the two best places. And, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to find me. Uh, certainly, they have no trouble finding me. So please reach out if I can ever be of assistance. <laughs> I, I can't let you go away without mentioning that your lab website is arabidopsisdaliana.com, which for all of us who grew up researching in Arabidopsis is, is I'm, a, I'm a little jelly, i got to say. <laughs> well, Liz, where can people reach you? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at, at ehaswell. 
and you can find me at Baxter Twee, T-W-I, and you can find the podcast at Taproot Podcast. And with that, thank you all for listening. Taproot is brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plant Day website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell and produced by Mary Williams and Melanie Binder. If you like this episode, please tell your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll bring you another story behind the science next week.